In survey after survey, most people admit to praying at some point in their lives. Whether or not people do it as some sort of superstition or genuinely believe that prayer works, most of us pray. Why? Perhaps it is because we all need hope beyond ourselves. As a society, we want to believe we are in control of our destiny, but at some point we all realize that we aren't. Things happen, life doesn't work out how we planned, and it is then that we realize we need help and hope. For the earliest Christians, prayer was as natural as breathing. God was doing something undeniable among them. The world had changed, and prayer was the only appropriate response when they needed hope, help, and direction. And perhaps as they prayed, it helped them remember that God really was in control too. Maybe the same is true for us. Well, as I stand here before you this morning, it's a great privilege to be able to uh, share some thoughts from, from the Bible, from the Word of God. But I want to re begin by reminding myself and reminding all of us, wherever you are in, in your faith journey, of, of really the, the importance, the value that we place upon Scripture, upon the Word of God. I remind myself that all Scripture is God-breathed and is actually useful for teaching, for rebuking, for uh, correcting, for training in righteousness. And also that the Word of God, the Bible, is living and active. So it's, it's supremely relevant to our lives today. God actually speaks to us through the Bible. And that's my anticipation this morning as, as we look into these uh, verses out of Acts, that God would actually speak to our hearts. Maybe not the same thing to everybody, but would speak to us individually by His Holy Spirit. And I, I, I anticipate that myself. The, the Bible is really the plumb line by which we calibrate our thinking and our worldview. And for me, it's been that way for about 47 years. When I, when I uh, as Stephen said in his testimony, when he found, discovered Jesus as his Lord and Savior, the transformation that's happened in his life. Same thing happened to me, and somebody placed a Bible in my hands, and that began, that began to inform my thinking and my whole worldview of how I, how I perceive things. And it's been that way ever since. It's been a journey. I've, I've wrestled with it at times, but I still hold to that foundational truth that all Scripture is God-breathed. And I want to encourage you this morning to, uh, to live according to the Bible. A, it says in Psalm 119, how can a young man or a young wo woman keep his or her way pure by living according to your word? And he's, it goes on in that Psalm to talk about uh, hiding uh, the word of God in our hearts and, and obeying its commands and not neglecting the word of God. Uh, interesting that a few years ago, the Bible Society did a, a survey amongst uh, church-going people and discovered that 39% of church-going people in the UK seldom or never read the Bible. It sounds like quite a drastic statistic, really. But uh, that, that was what the Bible Society d discovered. And of course, their whole ministry is about encouraging people to, through various ways to get into Scripture. So I want to encourage us this morning not to neglect Scripture in your own life to make it to cultivate a habit in the Bible. However much you read, you might read just a, a few verses a day, a verse, you might memorize a verse, you might read chapters. 
However, whatever works for you, I want to encourage you to be robust in cultivating a life in Scripture and uh, not just hearing it, but actually seeking to put it into practice. Because as, as we look at Scripture, we ask three questions. We say, even today's passage, we say, uh, what does the Scripture say? Secondly, we ask the question, what does it mean? We dig a bit deeper. And then the third question we ask is, how does it apply to my life? And so today, have that anticipation. That actually, you'll take away maybe one thought this morning uh, that you can actually put into practice in your life. So you know that we're in this uh, series uh, about uh, uh, looking, at, could God do it again? Could it be that God would do the things that we read about in these early chapters of Acts again in our day? And it's creating, it's raising the spiritual temperature. Really, it's, it's asking the question and raising our, our level of faith, really, to say, God, do it again. The testimony that we heard from Stephen, Lord, do it again, multiply that. May many people come to know Christ this year in a, through our witness and our, our, uh, our speaking of Jesus. And I, I just want to make a plug for what Andy had mentioned about the Christian Life and Witness class that Riverside hosted yesterday. I, I went to that, and uh, what a great way of being equipped to share your faith. And all of us wrestle with that. We feel, it, it, maybe we feel incompetent with that. We feel, how, how can I do that? And I don't feel I have the resources, the tools, the confidence to do that. And yet you go to something like that, and it just equips you. It gives you some of the tools, and it, it lifts your, your, your faith to see the possibilities that God can use any one of us in, in any of our situations. So I want to encourage you to... Uh, to think about that, to, to consider going to one of those Christian Life and Witness classes that Andy mentioned. And you might have a word with him afterwards as to find out where those are. So the, the key text in this series uh, comes from Acts, comes from the, the fourth chapter, where, uh, let me just find it here, um, where the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the apostles who have been brought before the authorities are told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they say, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And that, that was their motivation. They were simply declaring what they had seen, what they had heard. So that's our, that's our series this, this morning. In these chapters, we see how the church has been, been born on the day of Pentecost, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and everywhere they went with that empowerment of God's Spirit, they proclaimed the risen Christ. And the apostles replicated the works of Jesus in terms of, of amazing uh, signs and wonders and miracles. And people were filled with wonder and amazement at the things that they saw and heard. That was the effect it had on people. It had an effect of, of drawing people closer. So that the scripture says that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to know Christ that day. And then it's another section says that, the, that God added to their number daily uh, those who were being saved. And then further on it says 5,000 people were saved. So it was a great revival, a great moving of God's spirit upon the hearts of men and women to, to bring them to faith, to bring them to, to God's love and acceptance and forgiveness. Um, so it was an incredible time, and prayer was at the heart of it. And as we just heard there, for these early Christians, prayer seemed as natural as breathing. It was part of their life. So it's interesting, as, as we 
that surveys indicate that most people, whether followers of Jesus or not, believe in prayer to some degree and pray at times of crisis in their life. Most people do, whether, whether out of superstition or out of a genuine belief that prayer works. But the irony, however, is, is this, that a recent survey was done in the UK by Premier Christian News and it showed that only 38% of UK Christians pray regularly. So though we say, of course, everybody prays, everybody believes it, but in practice, this recent survey found that only 38% of Christians pray regularly. And uh, compared to uh, 52% of people from other faiths. So isn't that interesting that, that we, somehow there seems to be a... a, a a gap there. Why is this? Uh, there's sometimes a misconception maybe that prayer has to be done in a certain way, you know, in a certain, with our eyes closed or in a quiet place with the right choice of words or maybe there's a certain formula we have to use to somehow get God's, God's attention. And I think if I'm honest, many of us feel quite inadequate when it comes to prayer and uh, we just don't feel we're good at it. You know, we don't it seems that other people are better. We compare ourselves, and so we feel inadequate. Joanna Cullender from the 24-7 prayer movement, she said this, For many, church prayer meetings or prayers of intercession evoke negative emotions contrary to the personal relationship that prayer was created to be. So a lot of people have baggage about prayer. You know, it's boring. I don't like it. I can't do it. It's... Uh, all kinds of negativity around it. And yet she, she goes on to say, prayer at its heart is sharing our heart as honestly as we can, as regularly as possible. So as we see from the Bible, prayer comes in many shapes and sizes, from private devotional prayer, that, that sense that Jesus spoke of in uh, Matthew chapter 6, where he talks about when you pray, go into your prayer closet, shut the door just between you and God alone. There's that side of prayer, but there's also the side of prayer where we pray as a community of believers, where there's corporate prayer, and there's every shade of prayer in between. If you're looking for a tidy technique or a formula for prayer in the Bible, you won't find it, because Jesus himself uh, exhibited and, and demonstrated all kinds of different prayer, uh, pray, praying privately, where he would steal away by himself in the quiet of the night. In, into the lonely places and just have communion with his heavenly father. And there were other times where he prayed publicly with, with people around him. So, uh, so there's no technique or formula to that. But we're encouraged by prayer movements today, such as the 24-7 prayer movement, and, that have helpfully taught us that prayer can actually be creative and experimental, that we can actually push the boat out with prayer and not be stuck in a mold in terms of one way or one one habit of doing it, but we can, we can experiment. We can enjoy God in the place of prayer. For me, I consider myself an amateur, uh, a learner, uh, and perhaps you might feel the same when it comes to prayer. Uh, I remember a, a book I read years ago by Jane Holloway, who's with the World Prayer Center, and it's called Prayer for Amateurs, and the cover of it is a cartoon of a man uh, kneeling with his eyes closed with a big L plate on his back. And I've always identified with that. I thought, well, that, that pretty well describes me in prayer. And uh, I, 
there's a, a, a great book written by Andrew Murray many years ago. It's a Christian classic called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And I feel that's, that's true for me. That's true for all of us. We're all in the school of prayer with Jesus. So let that be an encouragement to you. Let's look at this passage as we'll, we'll kind of breeze through it. You know the backstory. It's been spoken of in previous weeks that Peter and John were on the way to prayer. And there was a dramatic healing of a man who had been crippled from birth. He was healed in the name of Jesus. And then what followed that was Peter's bold, Christ-centered preaching to the onlookers and then to the Jewish authorities who, who, uh, who took him prisoner. Uh, preaching to the onlookers, Jesus referred to Christ, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, over 15 times. He names the name of Christ. He calls him the author of life. He calls him the holy and righteous one. He refer- Jesus is at the center of his preaching. Be- and he says, this miracle did not happen because of us. We had no part to play in it other than their simple obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But it was Jesus, and he wanted very clearly to, to make it known that Jesus was the one who did this amazing miracle. And then what followed from that was persecution. I'll talk a bit about that in, in a bit. And then significant uh, numerical growth. And our prayer in this series is, God, we want you to do this again. We, uh, we don't believe that that was just for back then. We, we believe the Bible is living and active. We believe the Holy Spirit is active in our generation. And Lord, we, we, we cry out to you. We say, do it again, Lord. Revive our hearts. Cause us to be, uh, raise the spiritual temperature in our own personal lives and for us as a church so that we might see uh, incredible things of God. Uh, most uh, most especially see many people in the harvest come into Christ, come to know Jesus. That's our heart's desire. So, uh, so we want to see all of that, but what about persecution? Do we want that as well? You know, we say, Lord, do it again. You know, do the miracles and do the salvations and do the amazing testimonies. But do we say, Lord, what about persecution? Do, do that again. Because that was part and parcel of this whole story that we're reading about. It was real then, and it's real now, persecution is. In many parts of the world today, following Jesus comes at a very high cost. And you may know that uh, the Open Doors, the ministry that works amongst uh, the persecuted church, uh, every year publishes a, what they call a world watch list of rankings of, of the nations in the world where, where it's the most costly to be a Christian, where, where you will be... Uh, you will be persecuted for being a Christian. And of course, can anybody guess what the top one is? North Korea. Can you, can you mention maybe a few others in the top 10 that come to mind? Uh, Iran's uh, number nine, yes? Nigeria is, where is Nigeria on the list? It's, uh, it's down on the list, uh, 12th place. Sy- sorry? Syria? Is, uh, is there in the top 10. Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea. Surprisingly, some countries that even we might visit on a holiday. India, Vietnam, China, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Nepal. These are all holiday destinations, and yet these are places where people are persecuted for their faith. Uh, Open Doors also puts together uh, a list of what, what the current trends are 
regarding where the state of persecution uh, in the world. They, they say the church is alive, the church is active, the church is growing, and that's why the church is persecuted. The persecution of Christians is getting more severe than ever, they say, affecting increasing numbers of believers around the world. And these are some of the trends. They say more Christians are being persecuted this year than ever before, a staggering 260 million Christians in the top 50 countries on the World Watch list face high or extreme levels of persecution for their faith. They say persecution is getting worse. They say more churches are being attacked. And the, the, only, the only good news that's come out this year as a trend is actually that fewer Christians are being killed for their faith this last year than in previous years. But that's cold comfort, really. They say persecution is going digital in countries like China and India. The explosion of dig digital technology, technologies have been used to target Christians. So this is the world we live in. So when we read about these things in, uh, in the book of Acts, we're not reading about something you know, that was way back then, but we're reading something that's very relevant to us today. That, uh, that for the early Christians... Uh, that we're reading about Acts, they seemed to have been emboldened by persecution. The more they were persecuted, the more boldly they proclaimed the risen Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? So, uh, so I just raise that question in terms of, we say, Lord, do it again. Uh, are we living in a day where Christian values in this country are being eroded and where Christians are facing, maybe not outright persecution, but facing pressure that maybe they didn't face uh, a generation ago? Maybe the tide is turning in terms of that as well. I don't know. But I just put that before you. So three points from this passage. How did they pray? What did they pray? And what was the outcome of their prayer? Uh, after their release from prison, Peter and John went, it says they went straight to their own people. They went to their, their relations and their friends in Christ, their community of support and fellowship. That's who they made a beeline for. And then they shared with them out of this passage, uh, what had happened to them. Uh, having been bold in their witness before the Jewish authorities, we see here that they were also equally bold in prayer. So their first response to Peter's uh, account of arrest and persecution was that they raised their voices together in prayer. Something very powerful when a group of Christians actually raise their voice in prayer. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege of going to Nigeria with a, with a, a friend who is an academic from the School of Mission in, uh, at Birmingham University to, uh, to visit churches that were indigenous, indigenous Nigerian churches. They were not churches that were born out of missionaries or born out of Westerners going and planting there, but they're churches that the Holy Spirit spontaneously, spontaneously raised up within the Nigerian context. And, and one grouping of this church, a grouping of about three million believers, they're called the Aladura churches. It's a Yoruba word that means praying people. And they, they were founded in, I think, 1913. They've been going over 100 years, over three million members within those churches. And we got to visit one of those churches. It was absolutely a fascinating experience. It was, uh, there were probably three to 5,000 people in the congregation in this church building that had a kind of corrugated iron roof and just seemed to spread out for miles. And uh, the embarrassing thing was they called us up to give us a, give a greeting. Imagine doing that. You called up before 3,000 people to give a greeting. What do you say? You go, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> you hardly know what to say. But uh, we did it. 
And then we sat down. And what they did, their practice of prayer, of this raising their voices together in prayer, they had a guy up front who would say, say the, a prayer request. He'd put it out there. And they would all stand together, 3,000 people, and they would raise their voices in a mighty crescendo of prayer. I mean, just the noise. They would just be going for it together, corporately. And it reminded me of this passage. They raised their voices together in prayer. And then, at the front, he would ring a little bell. Ding, 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 ding. And everything would go quiet. They would stop just like that. And then he'd put out another prayer request. And they'd go hammer and tongs for it in prayer uh, for a few minutes, just crescendo of noise and prayer. And then ding, 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 ding. And they just quiet down to a complete silence. And I thought, how clever is that? You know, how obedient to the church to respond to that little bell. But that was raising their voices in prayer. And it was inspiring to me. And you know, when we've had this, uh, these three days of prayer and fasting at the beginning of the month, it was also inspiring to me the times we had as church to pray together, where we raised our voices in prayer, where we dedicated ourselves uh, for those three days and hopefully even beyond to seek God, you know, to humble ourselves, to draw near to God that He might draw near to us. What a great privilege that was. And I was inspired in my own personal prayer life by those three days. I really, I took it seriously and I benefited hugely from it. And I, I think many people did. That sense of, of corporate prayer, praying together. But that was their first response. And I wonder sometimes, is our first response in crisis to turn to God in prayer? Or do we look for another solution straight away and then, oh, as an afterthought, we pray? But to, to, to our first response is, oh God, we're just going to pause here before I, I dash here and dash there to solve the problem. I'm, we're just going to pause for thought, pause for prayer, Lord, to come before you to, to, uh, to get a perspective on, on what the issue is. And that seems to be what they did. And prayer reflected their utter dependence upon God in this passage. So how did they pray? How did they approach God? They firstly acknowledged God's nature and character. They cried out, they said, Sovereign Lord. And the word sovereign there in the original Greek means a ruler of unchallengeable power. In other words, preeminent, sovereign Lord. That was, their, that was where their thoughts went to right away before they prayed for specific things. They, they lifted their eyes, as it were, to the heavens, crying out, sovereign Lord. Uh, and it's really about the, the, the bigger picture of God, of the God of the universe. And there were three aspects to their prayer. I'll just, cover, just kind of rush through these, really, as time allows. The first thing is that they, that they acknowledge that He is the God of creation. They say, God who made the heaven and the earth and everything in them. The, the, God, the God who is the creator of all things. The God who in the beginning created the heavens, the earth. The God who is spoken of in Psalms. It says the earth is the Lord's and, and the fullness thereof. Everything and every person who dwells in it is the Lord's. That sense of perspective. And I think sometimes whatever, whatever giant in the land you're facing, whatever issue you're facing that seems insurmountable, that we get, we get swamped by, Sometimes we, we ha the, our first place before God has to be to get perspective, to step back, to almost, as it were, to lift our eyes to the creation rather than to the problem. I had an experience of that many years ago uh, when I was in, in charge of a, uh, 
of a ministry, a, a, a community, intentional community, discipleship community. It was an old Coast Guard lighthouse station on the, the coast of California. And uh, I was in charge of the place, so I faced huge responsibility. And we were taking in hippies and people who had drug addiction problems. And we had an open door, as well as discipling them, seeing people come to Christ and seeing their lives transformed. Our policy was whosoever will may come. So in those days, people were hitchhiking up and down the coast of California. And we'd pick up hitchhikers and give them a meal, give them a place to stay. And we'd proclaim Jesus to them. And many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people found Christ. It was, it was called the Jesus Movement. It was, a, it was a great outpouring of the Spirit amongst unlikely unchurched people with great fruit. But, so I was in charge of this place, and people would bring their problems to our door. I was 26 years old. I was just a young man. Sandy and I lived there. We had at least one small child, maybe two at that point. And people were always knocking on the door. Oh, the the water tank's broken, or, oh, this person's freaking out, you know, in the dorm, he's coming off of drugs, you know. So all these situations, and it was constant pressure. And one evening, when it was dark, I just had had it. And so I walked away from this property, this old Coast Guard lighthouse station on a bluff overlooking the Pacific. And as I walked away, I looked back, and it got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and I walked maybe half a mile away, and it was just like a speck in the distance. And then, I think by the Holy Spirit's prompting, I just lifted my eyes, and it was, a, it was, it was in the countryside, so it was an open, clear heaven. I could see galaxies. I could see the Milky Way. I could see, it was just the, the and it just, I was awestruck, because I realized, that actually, this is the God of creation. And here I'm stressing about all these little problems, these issues, that as I get distance and perspective, they become smaller and smaller. And as I look to the heavens, they get even smaller. Scientists reckon that in our galaxy, there are over 100 billion stars. And they reckon in the known universe, there are over 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. And that puts it into perspective. This is the God of creation. And sometimes we need that perspective, the bigger picture, when we're faced with the giants in the land. So he is the God of creation. Secondly, they say he is the God of revelation, who spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. Scripture was their point of reference as they prayed. And that's, that's, uh, their per perspective was informed and defined by the scriptures. This is, and they referred to Psalm 2, which is a great messianic psalm for the Jews. And, and scripture was their frame of reference. And so in our prayer, it's really good when we actually pray the scripture, pray the Bible. You know, I, when I pray in the morning with people, I always pray, this always comes to mind, God, thank you that your mercies are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. Where is that? Is it in Habakkuk? Ecclesiastes. No, is it? <laughs> Sorry? Lamentations. Okay, it's a, it's a lottery. We'll see. But, but I pray that prayer, and it's praying the Word of God. And I want to encourage you in your prayers, use Scripture to pray. In your devotional time, in your time praying with people, don't just pray out of our heads, but, but, but lay those foundations. Lord, this is what your Word says. These are your promises. This is your perspective from, from Scripture. So, 
Uh, they did that. Their perspective was defined by Scripture. And God is still the God who reveals himself today through Scriptures. It wasn't just for then. Just like it wasn't for then that, that God was the, the, uh, the that, that he's the God of creation. He's still the God of creation today. He's still the God who reveals himself through Scriptures. And then the third point here is that he's the God of history. They that who caused even his enemies, Herod and uh, Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, they conspired against Jesus to do what his power, what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So God was in control of the circumstances. They're reminding themselves of that. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that, that God is still the God of history and current events. He's still in control. Peter, in one of his great preaches in uh, Acts 17, he says, that, uh, he says that from one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live, for God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That God determines the nations. God determines even where we're born, even what family we're born into. Like God, we're, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're knit together in our mother's womb. That's all determined by God. He is the God of history. Some people say history is his story. It's all about, uh, about the fact that, that God and is, is the God of history, and they're reminding themselves of that. And then they say, then, then what did they actually pray? Well, many of these uh, early disciples had been schooled by Jesus himself in prayer. They, they would remember his teaching. They would have well remembered seeing Jesus in prayer and would have remembered his teaching on prayer when they came to him and, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. So they would have remembered that in his teaching about the Lord's prayer. And uh, they would have well remembered the, the parables that Jesus taught about, about perse perseverance in prayer. You know, the, 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 the uh, importunity, the widow who knocked and knocked and knocked until, knocked until she got an answer. And Jesus told that parable so that they should always pray and not give up. There was a persistence in prayer. But also, um, the... Uh, let me just catch my breath. They would have well remembered the, the passage of, uh, where Jesus in Luke's gospel was talking, uh, laying out this prayer principle, saying, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So that would have been in their, in their DNA as followers of Jesus, those teachings, those those thoughts that, that Jesus' emphasis on, on those principles of prayer, they would have remembered that as they lifted their voices to God. And then they prayed specifically that God consider their threats, consider the threats against them. Take, take note, bear in mind, you know, weigh it in the balance. They were looking for grace in the midst of persecution. Uh, Jesus had prepared the disciples for persecution. He told them about it. He said, this will happen. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He also said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that would have been in their thinking as well, as they, as they said, consider the threats against us. The second thing they prayed, that uh, God would enable them to speak his word with great boldness that they would be undeterred by the pro prohibition against 
and the threats against them not to speak in the name of Jesus, not to proclaim that name. They prayed for boldness. And then lastly, that God would stretch out his hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Their petition was not for miracles of vengeance. You know, Lord, strike them with fire from heaven. But their, their petition was for miracles of mercy, for healing. Lord, touch people, for salvations. Miracles of mercy rather than miracles of, of vengeance. Healings and miracles are a grace from God where the extraordinary, the extraordinary, breaks in on the ordinary, where the supernatural breaks in upon the natural. With our modern kind of rational mindset, we must not take the view that healings and miracles never happen, just as we shouldn't take the view that they always happen. That doesn't seem to be the indication of Scripture. There's some wisdom here from John Stott, the theologian, the vicar from uh, All Souls Langham Place, a great theologian, respected man. He said this, if we take Scripture as our guide, we will avoid opposite extremes. We will neither describe miracles as never happening nor as everyday occurrences, neither as impossible nor as normal. Instead, we will be entirely open to the God who works both through nature and through miracle. And that's a balanced perspective because there is some teaching in times where you, with the expectation that miracles always happen. But actually, if you read through the books of Acts they didn't always happen by everybody. It was the apostles that actually did the miracles. It wasn't everybody all the time. You know, we're getting these kind of highlights, these snapshots of incredible movings of God. But actually, they did happen because God is the God of miracles, but they were not necessarily everyday practices. So that's just to put that in balance there. Finally, what was the effect of prayer? The place where they were praying was shaken. That was a sign from God. I've never been in a room praying when it was shaken. Has anybody here ever been in a room that was shaken when you prayed? Sometimes people have. I never have. But that was an answer to their prayer. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the Word of God boldly. Uh, that's an answer to prayer. They'd asked for that. And then the consequence was, as a community, they were one in heart and mind. There was great unity, so much so that they shared everything they had. There was extravagant generosity so that there was no needy person among them, it says in Scripture. And then finally, that much grace was with them all. The Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. And, and my question this morning, is that not what we want? Don't we, wouldn't we love to see that filling of the Holy Spirit uh, individually and as a church? Wouldn't we love to speak the Word of God boldly? Do it again, Lord. Wouldn't we love to... to have uh, such a great unity that we're, it's spoken of us that we're one in heart and mind. Lord, do that again. Create that unity. Wouldn't we love to, uh, to have extravagant generosity so that there was no needy amongst us? Lord, do that again. And wouldn't we love to have much grace for all these things? Lord, do that again. That's our prayer this morning. Prayer changes more things than we realize, including our worldview, our perspective. It recalibrates our thinking, our relationship to God, our relationship to other people. Not only do things change, but we change in the process as we pray. How many times have I prayed for somebody that I have difficulty with, a difficult relationship, and in the process, God changes me? I don't know what, the God, do, what God does in the other person, because I'm not privy to that. 
but I know that God changes me as I pray for a person. It might be a work colleague. It might be your boss at work. It might be a neighbor. As you pray for that person that you're struggling with, God changes your heart in the process. That's the beauty of it. And then, uh, yeah, not only do things change, but we change in the process.